The Bermuda Triangle is a mysterious area of ocean in the Atlantic. It lies between Miami, Bermuda, Puerto Rico. In its spacious waters, aircraft and watercraft have inexplicably vanished. In some cases, piracy, inclement weather, human error, equipment failure have all been ruled out as possible explanations. Some folks attribute these strange phenomena to paranormal activities. There are those who suggest that the triangle is a flashpoint for Satan and his devils. To explain the mystery of the Bermuda Triangle, we can only speculate. But there is another triangle a triangular set of coordinates that for a few years saw more paranormal activity than any place the planet has ever seen. And we can trace their cause to a definitive source. During the first half of the first century, on the northern shore of Israel's Sea of Galilee, paranormal and supernatural phenomena occurred with great regularity. Storms mysteriously ceased. A sack lunch of fish and chips was multiplied to feed 15,000 hungry, hungry stomachs. A surfer was seen on top of the water's surface without a surfboard. Lame legs began to leap and walk. Even a little girl was raised from the dead. Call it the gospel triangle. The area between three cities, a mere three miles apart, Capernaum, Chorazin and Bethsaida. Here Jesus did the lion's share of his miracles. The Nelson's Bible Dictionary estimates that 18 of Jesus' 33 recorded miracles, that's a whopping 55% were performed in this small triangular area. Tonight we're headed for the Gospel Triangle where Jesus worked mysterious miracles to prove clearly and conclusively that he was God. Well, chapter 6 begins... After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. This is one of my favorite places to go whenever we visit Israel. What a majestic, wonderful place, the Sea of Galilee. The sea is actually the largest freshwater lake in northern Israel. It's in the northeast corner of the country. The lake is 13 miles long by 8 miles wide. In the early first century, a flourishing and popular city grew up on the western shore of the lake. The Romans named it after their emperor, Tiberius. They referred to the lake then as the Sea of Tiberius. Now, since the Romans built Tiberius over a Jewish graveyard, few Jews lived in the city of Tiberius in Jesus' day. In fact, there's no mention of the city in the Gospels. Jesus and his men never visited Tiberius. They spent most of their time on the northern shore, the Jewish area, what we're calling tonight the Gospel Triangle. Verse 2, Then a great multitude followed Jesus, because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now apparently Jesus retreated to escape the crowd and have some alone time with his men. Luke chapter 9 verse 10 says that the miracle that follows occurred in, quote, a deserted place. It belonged to the city of Bethsaida, which means house of fishing. Bethsaida was a fishing village. The problem, though, is in locating the town of Bethsaida. There may have actually been two Bethsaidas. Today, the ruins of Bethsaida have been found on a hill or a tail 
east of where the Jordan feeds into the lake, three miles from Capernaum. But the traditional site of the feeding of the 5,000 is south of Capernaum. It's a location called by the Arabic name Tabga, which means seven springs. The little village was built over seven warm water springs that fed into the lake and made for a really good fishing bed. Here the mountain slopes down to the sea. Some scholars think that Tabga was a second Bethsaida, Bethsaida of the Galilee. We're unsure of the exact location of Bethsaida, but we're certain it was located near the Gospel Triangle on the northern shore of the Lake of Galilee. We're told now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. This made it early spring. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him. So much for escaping the crowd. They found him. They're they're headed his way. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now John chapter 1 verse 44 tells us that Philip was from Bethsaida. He knew the area. Is there a grocery store around? Jesus is asking him. We got some people to feed. But this Jesus said to test Philip, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus already had this scoped out, but he's testing Philip. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. Philip was known as the pragmatic disciple. Here he whips out his pocket calculator. He creates a little formula to feed the crowd. Verse 10 numbers it at 5,000 men. Of course, that's with women and children, maybe 15,000 strong. Philip figures it's going to cost at least 200 denarii. Now, this was a large sum of money, around eight months' wages. For a modern equivalency, figure 40,000 bucks. But there was one key factor Philip left out of his equation. I hope you never leave it out of yours. Jesus. The disciples are about to learn that no matter how little you have or how much you lack, when you've got Jesus, you've got more than enough. Well, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? Now, three times in the Gospels, we see Andrew And on each occasion, he's doing the same thing. Do you know what it is? He's bringing somebody to Jesus. That's why we all need to be an Andrew. Who can you bring to Jesus? Other than Jesus' own resurrection, understand the miracle of multiplication is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. This was an amazing event. The disciples saw it as unique, even among the miracles. Later in the chapter, the wind and the waves obey Jesus. But here, so do the electrons and the protons. Jesus is going to manipulate the atomic structure of the loaves and fish, multiply the portions. It was a molecular miracle. Now, John does give us a couple of insights that we don't get from the other Gospels. The Greek word he uses for fish is the word apsarion, which means little fish. And if you go to the Lake of Galilee, you'll find it's full of these little bite-sized minnows. They're all swimming around close to the shore. That's what he was talking about, little minnows. John also tells us that the boy's loaves were made of barley, not wheat. Barley was the poor man's bread. So in other words, this little boy's lunch, this was skimpy, man. This was more a snack. 
Cheap bread and two sardines. That's what he brought to Jesus. Verse 10. Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down. In number, about 5,000. Jesus is creating some organization here. Soon he's going to need to serve a massive meal. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples. And the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. A miracle had taken place. 5,000 men plus their families were fed from one kid's meal. Can you imagine? And notice, Jesus didn't just provide all that was needed. Notice, he provided as much as they wanted. The crowd was allowed to go back for second helpings and third and fourth. You know, I get tired of folks who cast a cloud of doubt over God's benevolence and his love for his people. They make comments like, well, God promises to give us what we need, not necessarily what we want. Technically, that's true, but it's only half true. For God is a father who loves his kids. He loves to bless us. He delights in giving us the desires of our heart. Sometimes we limit God. We desire stuff that might hurt us. But God loves to please us when he can. He loves to give us as much as we wanted. And so when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. And I love this lesson here. I hope you've learned it. Jesus never wastes a miracle and neither should we. You see, John's gospel reveals that Jesus' miracles taught spiritual truths. The miracles always carried a message. And it's just as true today. Whenever God works a miracle in our lives, he's teaching us something about himself that we need to learn. Well, verse 13. Therefore they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which that were left over by those who had eaten. Now perhaps the 12 baskets of leftovers were for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Perhaps they were for each of Jesus' 12 faithless disciples. Either way, here's the point. There's more than enough when Jesus is at work. Like the little boy, we should bring to Jesus our skimpiness and let him transform it with his lavishness. Well, then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. The Dodgers are a baseball team that play in Los Angeles in California. But they actually started out in Brooklyn, New York. Originally, they were called the Trolley Dodgers. They got their unusual name from the nimble pedestrians that would navigate the city, busy city streets without colliding with a downtown trolley. Well, here Jesus becomes the first Dodger. This crowd following him is a trolley. They want to drag him on board, but he's not comfortable with their intentions. They want to make him an earthly king, and thus Jesus dodges the crowd. Realize the Jews understood the kingdom of God as an earthly kingdom with a political king. 
And when they saw Jesus' supernatural power, they thought it could be harnessed to accomplish their political goals. They wanted a coronation. But Jesus knew the only crown he would ever wear on earth, at least at his first coming, was a crown of thorns. Jesus refused to be manipulated by the whims of the crowd. He was determined to only do the will of his Father. Jesus climbs a mountain to dodge the crowd. Verse 16 tells us, Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. Now this would have been a very short trip from Tabgah to Capernaum, or even from Bethsaida to Capernaum. It was just a few miles. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. Now you need to understand the topography here. Topographically, the Sea of Galilee sits in the bottom of a bowl. The Lebanese mountains are north. The Golan Heights are north and east. The hills of the upper and lower Galilee are to the west. The lake is at the bottom of a funnel, 680 feet below sea level. And here's what at times happens. The cold winds from the north, they swoop down off the mountaintops. And they hit the warm water that's sitting on the lake. As a result, violent storms erupt. And this is what victimized the disciples that night. Their little skip across the lake became a fight for their lives. Verse 19. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, now at most it was two miles from Tabgah to Capernaum, what would have been just a few minutes of smooth sailing turned into hours of storm fighting. The other gospels say that they fought this storm for close to eight hours. And in the midst of this tug of war with the violent weather, the disciples looked up and guess what they saw? They saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat. Mark chapter 6 verse 47 says that by now the boat had been knocked off course by miles. It was actually out in the middle of the lake. John ends verse 19 with an understatement. He says the disciples were afraid. I should say so. The sudden storm and now the surprise surfer scared the wits right out of them. They're rubbing their eyes. We can't believe what we're seeing. Previously, they had been thrilled by a miracle. Now they're being tested by a storm. And I hope you know God does both rather frequently in our lives. He thrills us, and then he tests us. But Jesus said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Now notice Jesus doesn't add any comment about the storm. He doesn't reveal how or when or even if he plans to quell it. He simply says, it is I, do not be afraid. See, Jesus expects his presence in the midst of the storm to be enough to vanquish our fears. Think of it this way. He cares more about calming the storm in his disciples than he does calming the storm on the sea. Always remember, for it's true even for us, peace in the boat always precedes peace on the water. Before he removes our circumstance, he wants to do a work in us. 
Well, then they willingly received him into the boat. And, and I read that and I think, well, what are they going to do? Make him continue to walk? Make him swim? What are they going to do? Of course they welcomed him into the boat. Here's another miracle. And immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Uh, the only thing I can think is Jesus gets in some rapture practice here. I mean, one moment they're stuck in the middle of the lake, and then boom, the next second they're at the shore. They cover about four miles in a split second. Verse 22. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the peoples therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Several boats had sailed into Bethsaida, but only one had sailed out, the disciples' boat. And everyone had seen that Jesus was not on board. Now the word is out. Jesus is in Capernaum. How in the world did he get there? Verse 25, and when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? They come to Jesus asking about his movements. But what concerns Jesus more is their motives. Understand that. Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me. Not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Notice again, Jesus refers to his miracles as signs. And this is true of all God's wonders. When God works a miracle of healing or any other miracle, his goal is not just the removal of human suffering. If that were the case, why doesn't he heal all sick people? If he wants to remove human suffering, why doesn't he just abolish death and dying? No, that's not his goal. The truth is, when God works a miracle, he's doing something out of the ordinary. He's interrupting the natural order to get our attention and to teach us a specific lesson. His feeding of the masses didn't mean that they now had a perpetual meal ticket. He was teaching them that he could take their meagerness and multiply it into much. Now, at the time... The Roman, Roman formula for controlling the masses was bread in circuses. You've probably heard this before. The Romans thought, just keep the public fed. Keep them entertained and they'll be content. Realize Rome had set aside 93 days on the yearly calendar as annual public holidays. 93. Games, food, entertainment were all government-sponsored and government uh, funded. Rome realized that it was cheaper to pay for bread in circuses than it was to put down revolts and keep up prisons. And the masses who followed Jesus, understand, they had this same kind of bread and circuses mentality. They viewed Jesus as a means to an end, a sideshow, rather than an end in himself. They should have probed deeper. What did his miracles say about the man? What did these signs mean? Years ago, I led a fellowship of Christian athletes group over at Parkview High School. And every year, we planned a snow skiing trip in the middle of February. Well, 
the several meetings before the big trip, man, we had a crowd. We probably had 50, 60 kids coming to the meeting. But every year after the trip, the size of the group dropped down to maybe a dozen. You see, most of the students weren't really hungry for the Lord. They were using the FCA to go snow skiing. And this often happens. People serve God for what they can get out of him. They're interested in God as long as he helps them to advance their own personal agenda. As long as they get what they want, they'll follow. But the moment they're challenged with a higher agenda, that's when they bolt. And you see, this was the crowd that followed Jesus. And Jesus addresses them. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. Bread was never the point. The miracle of the loaves and fish was a sign to teach them a spiritual lesson. Jesus filled their stomachs to show that he could fill their soul. But the masses missed the message. They were hungry for perishables, for food and fun, and maybe even force of a military kind. They tried to use the power of Jesus to secure earthly gains, while Jesus used his power to point them to a deeper spiritual life. Sadly, I meet people all the time who are disappointed with God. They feel like God has let them down. Usually these people have a bread and circuses mentality. They long for the food. They long for the fun that perishes. People are so fickle. They serve God as long as it serves them. They follow him for selfish reasons. People still treat Jesus like a meal ticket rather than the Lord of glory. And Jesus' word today is the same as it was then. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. Well, then they said to him, what do we do that we may work the works of God? And every cult, every false religion has its own answer to this question. What must we do to work the works of God? Islam says, fast during the month of Ramadan and pilgrimage to Mecca. Hinduism says, torture the body and push your physical endurance. Judaism says, keep the law according to the tradition of our elders. Mormonism says, follow Joseph Smith, decaffeinate, do a mission. Roman Catholicism says, do penance, make confession, attend Mass. But what did Jesus say? What does it take to work the works of God? Here is God's sole requirement. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Guys, pleasing God is so simple. Just believe in Jesus. That's all he asks, that we believe in Jesus whom he sent. All religions break down into two categories. On the one hand, you've got religions that expect you to do or be good. You atone for your sin through your own religious works and charitable deeds and moral behavior. Every religion but one fits into this category. The second category is Christianity. It claims that God is so holy that we could never do enough to please Him. Yet because He loves us, He has atoned for our sin. He has covered our guilt through the work and effort of Jesus. 
Now the only work left for us to do is to trust in the sufficiency of God's Son. As Jesus puts it, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He sent. And then verse 30, Therefore they said to Him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Now this is an amazing question for this crowd to ask. Had they forgotten what happened the day before with the fish and chips? What sign? Obviously, these people didn't need an additional evidence. They were just prodding for more thrills. That's what they were about. Give us more bread and circuses. Jesus answers them. Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And this was really significant, for the rabbis taught that Messiah would cause manna to fall from heaven again, just as it had in Moses' day. Well, Jesus continues. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The true bread. The sustenance that satisfies the human soul wasn't manna. It was a man. Manna fed Israel in the desert, but the man, Christ Jesus, feeds all men in all times. Jesus alone can meet our deepest hungers. Verse 34, Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Once a missionary in India was boarding a train when he handed a man a New Testament. Well, the man opened it. Notice it was the Christian scriptures, and he angrily ripped it apart, threw it out the window. All the pages were blown away. You might think that would be the end of the story, but a young man in search of the truth happened to be walking along the rails that day. He reached down and he picked up a scrap of paper and he read these words, the bread of life. The Indian later said those were the most beautiful words he'd ever read. Later he asked a friend what they meant. His friend told him that they came from the Christian Bible. But a Hindu shouldn't read the Bible lest he be defiled. The man was undaunted though. He searched and searched. And finally found a New Testament and he discovered this verse located here in John 6 where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. This young man was converted and he became a pastor. Now he's a distributor of the bread of life. In ancient Israel, bread was not just one of the four major food groups. It was the main food. It was what? It was the food on everybody's table. In ancient times and throughout the Middle East, even to this day, bread is the sustenance of life. It's the main staple in people's diet. When Jesus referred to himself as the bread of life, it would be like me saying to you today, I am the protein of life. Or I am the vitamins of life. Jesus is saying that he alone satisfies our spiritual hunger. Hey, Jesus contains all the spiritual nutrients and fiber and minerals and vitamins and protein you'll ever need. Jesus is the true soul food. He's the bread of life. He contains all the USDA daily requirements. Are you bread fed? 
And once you are, you'll never hunger or thirst again. I once read a survey that said people who go to the grocery store without something to eat ahead of time, you'll spend $28.80 more on food if you go to the grocery store hungry. Whereas if you eat dinner prior to going to the grocery store, you'll spend $37.25 less. When your stomach is full, you're less vulnerable to impulse spending. And so it is with the heart that feeds on the bread of life. Once you've satiated your hunger, once you've slaked your thirst with Jesus Christ, everything else loses its appeal. You're less likely to succumb to tempting impulses. Once you're used to being bread fed, nothing else can satisfy your deepest desires. And Jesus continues speaking in verse 36. He says, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And again, this idea of Jesus coming down from heaven was a claim to deity. It was proof that he was, he was God. See, humans don't exist before they're born. But Jesus came down from heaven he pre-existed before his birth. Jesus was God, yet he had the heart of a true servant, for he came not to do his own will, but the will of him who sent me, he says. And may we all have that attitude. And he says, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me, I should, not, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Now, here's a verse that teaches what we call predestination. The redeemed are defined by Jesus as all the Father has given me. The idea is that God chose in advance those who would be saved and gave them as gifts to his Son. But notice the very next verse teaches the opposite doctrine, what we call man's free will. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. The redeemed are also defined as those who see the Son and believe in Him. In other words, salvation is predicated on our choice. So which is it? Does God choose us, or do we choose God? It's interesting to me that Jesus taught both God's sovereignty and human responsibility in back-to-back verses. It's just amazing. And he made no attempt to reconcile the two perspectives. Jesus understood that in God's infinite wisdom, what appears to be a contradiction to us is a carefully choreographed partnership to God. Even though it baffles us, it harmonizes in God. In the end, everyone God chose chooses God. And everyone who chooses God was chosen by God. How can that be? I don't know. But I don't have to know. I don't have to figure it out. That's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches it over and over and over again. And we need to take it by faith. We need to put faith above reason. 
Once there was a man who asked the famed preacher C.H. Spurgeon how he could reconcile that the Bible teaches both predestination and free will. Spurgeon's reply was classic. He said, I never try to reconcile friends. That's how I feel about it as well. Verse 41. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Understand, they clearly understood what Jesus was claiming, didn't they? To pre-exist before his birth, to come down from heaven, was a proclamation of his deity. They understood that. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Three times now Jesus has talked about his resurrection or the resurrection of our bodies. Evidently, in the mind of our Lord, our salvation isn't complete until the day our decaying body is made brand new. I'm turning 60 in a couple of weeks, and I'm becoming very aware, very aware of my decaying body. I'm looking more and more forward to this resurrection body I've been promised. Realize God's salvation will redeem everything that sin has touched. There's much more going on here than just our sins being forgiven. Sin has a far-reaching impact. Yes, it severed our relationship with God, but it did more. There's a whole litany of symptoms. Sin is what causes natural disasters. It's what causes aging and death. It's what caused hostility between man and animal. It's what causes sickness and disease. And Christianity promises to cure all these ills in God's timing. The salvation Jesus brings will put an end to all sin's destructive consequences. Jesus' work climaxes on the day that he raises our dead bodies from the grave. Jesus continues in verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. He quotes Isaiah 54, verse 13. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Wow. Jesus claims to have seen the Father. I had an uncle who served in World War II. He was served in the Navy. He was a very good baseball player, and he played on the service team with the famed Yankee slugger Joe DiMaggio. As a kid, I always saw my uncle as somebody special simply because he played baseball with Jolton Joe DiMaggio. I was so cool. But imagine the disciples reflecting on verse 46. They had lived with the man who had actually seen God. He had seen the Father in heaven. No earthling has seen God, the Father, except Jesus. And the disciples had lived with him. They had talked to him. They had even spoken to him about his Father. Reminds me of John's letter we've been studying on Sunday mornings. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Jesus tells them, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. 
This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Jesus compares himself to the manna that God fed the Israelites in the wilderness. Remember, every day for 40 years, God supplied them a miracle. A mysterious wafer appeared on the ground. Manna sustained the people physically. Manna was good for the belly. It was good for the body. But those who ate the miracle manna, they eventually died. Moses' bread didn't supply eternal life. In contrast, Jesus says anyone who eats of his bread or believes in him will live forever. Jesus is eternal fuel, eternal sustenance. Feed on him and it guarantees eternal life. As it turns out, the manna's primary purpose was to depict Jesus. It was the perfect type of Jesus. It demonstrated Jesus in at least six ways. First, it was a mystery. You know what the word manna means. It means, what is it? Jesus was likewise a mystery to the Jews. Second, it came at night. Jesus also came during the darkness of man's sin, during the nighttime. Third, manna was small, which speaks of Christ's humility. Fourth, it was round, which speaks of his eternal nature. Fifth, it was white, which speaks of his purity. And sixth, manna was sweet to the taste, which also describes Jesus to the tea. In essence, manna was the ultimate appetizer. It was supposed to whet the Israelis' appetite for the main entree who would follow, the bread of life, Jesus the Messiah. Verse 52, the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And remember, this had been Jesus' problem communicating with Nicodemus. Also his problem communicating with the woman at the well. You recall Nicodemus' question to Jesus' command, you must be born again. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? In other words, he took Jesus literally while Jesus was speaking to him figuratively. That's the issue here. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, obviously, Jesus wasn't advocating cannibalism. Eating human flesh and drinking blood were outlawed in the law of Moses. Jesus is speaking here metaphorically. To eat and to drink in a spiritual sense is to believe. Eating and drinking like faith are simple, natural acts. A child enters this world with the innate ability to eat and drink. These are not skills that a child has to be taught or learned. And likewise, humans are born into this world with the ability to have faith. Hey, everybody trusts in something or in someone. To eat his flesh, to drink his blood was the equivalent of trusting in Jesus, having faith. It's sad when it comes to communion, Roman Catholics have made the same mistake that Nicodemus and the, man in the, well, at the, and the woman at the well and the Jews here made. They t- they've taken the words of Jesus literally rather than figuratively and metaphorically. The Catholic conception of communion, or as they call it, transubstantiation, says that when the wine and the bread are blessed by the priest, they literally, they materially become the blood and body of our Lord Jesus. 
And thus Jesus gets sacrificed over and over and over again, which the scripture's clear can't happen. But you see, it's this kind of wooden literalism that Jesus rebukes here in John chapter 6. To prod the spirituality of his disciples, Jesus is speaking these truths in spiritual terms. Verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Again, he mentions the resurrection. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Just as your body metabolizes natural foods, as our spirit interacts with the spirit of Jesus, we draw spiritual strength from him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. In other words, eating and drinking are to the material world what believing and receiving are in the spiritual world. Jesus sees faith as spiritual consumption. Pay attention to this. This is helpful when you understand what faith means. Faith is more than just intellectual assent. It's more than just an agreement to the facts. Faith is a spiritual participation. It's a spiritual consumption. See, faith puts the effects and promises of Jesus to the lips of my life. And as I chew on their implications, I partake of their power. You see, in a sense, faith is like eating and drinking. Of course, it's been said you are what you eat. Your body digests, it metabolizes whatever food you feed it. Thus, a healthier diet produces a healthier body. And this is also true spiritually. Faith does for the spirit what eating does for the body. It digests, it consumes, it metabolizes whatever it's fed. As Jesus said, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. What are you feeding on tonight? Are you feeding on Jesus, his words, his spirit? Are you feeding on the things of this world? If you want the healthiest of all diets, feed on Jesus. And then Jesus says, this is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What an amazing exchange. Jesus had spoken to them figuratively to challenge them to think more spiritually minded. He was prodding them to see life from a spiritual, eternal perspective. But they complained. Oh, Jesus, you're just being difficult. At every turn, the disciples wanted Jesus to make their way easier rather than harder. Let me say, if you've got that mentality, if you want Jesus just to make things easier rather than harder, it won't be long, friend, before Jesus offends you too. Verse 62. What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? He's been saying he's come down from heaven, and now he asks them, would it be easier for you to believe that I came down from heaven if you saw me go back up to heaven? And they'll actually get that opportunity one day. After Jesus' resurrection, his disciples were there on the Mount of Olives as he ascended back to heaven. In the meantime, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, 
and they are life. When Jesus spoke of eating and drinking his flesh, feeding on him, he was referring to spiritual dynamics, not physical digestion. Real life, eternal life, isn't the work of the gallbladder or your gastric juices. It's the work of God's Holy Spirit. What's concerning Jesus here is not the operation of your digestive tract, but are you on the right spiritual track? And then verse 64, Jesus makes a jarring statement. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. Jesus knew from the day Judas signed on that he would be the one who would betray him. And Jesus said, therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. This was a turning point for many of the multitude. It was here that Jesus started thinning out the crowd. His hard sayings, as the disciples called them, had turned back the ambulance chasers and the thrill seekers. The bread and circus crowd became discouraged at this point, and they chose to go home. It's here in John 6 that Jesus started separating the pretenders from the contenders. And my question to you tonight, are you going to leave him? When he insists on his agenda and not yours, are you going to leave him? When you realize he has deeper purposes for you than just bread and circuses, what are you going to do? Verse 67 is a moment of decision for Jesus' closest men. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? It's their choice. Ah, but I love Peter's response. But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I'm sure Peter didn't understand all that Jesus said, but he had heard, he had seen enough to know that Jesus had the goods. There was something different about Jesus. The more Peter saw and heard Jesus, the more it narrowed his choices. Jesus claimed to be God, and both his power and his words had backed up that claim. Jesus alone had the words of eternal life. And at times, friends, I feel like Peter. Following Jesus is stretching. It'll stretch you. It'll challenge you. At times, it can even be unsettling. You're never quite sure what to expect. There are trials along the way. Jesus even brings trials into our lives. There's persecution. You never know where this road is going to lead. But when it's over and you've obeyed, you're never disappointed. The words of Jesus always bring life and hope. And so I love Peter's conclusion. He says to Jesus exactly what I have said to Jesus a thousand times. Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. And chapter 6 closes. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him. 
being one of the twelve.